So for those of you who were here with us last week, uh, Pastor Eugene started, uh, we recently stopped, uh, finished rather, a sermon series on the Psalms. And now we are starting a three-week series called Generous, Our Response to God's Goodness. And Pastor Eugene started us off last week. Um, I'm doing here week two, and Pastor Eugene will be back next week to finish off the third and final message on our series, Generous, before we move into Advent and kind of work our way towards Christmas. Being a local, my name is Danny, and I'm actually, I grew up here in Massachusetts. I've been in New England all my life. And being a local, when the holidays come around, now that Thanksgiving is approaching, one of the things that I really appreciate about being from around here is that when Thanksgiving, Christmas, New Year's, whatever holiday comes, I just hop into my car, drive 45 minutes down the road, and there's my family, my friends, my loved ones, the people that I grew up with, the meal. And uh, I don't have to worry about that hustle bustle of, you know, getting a flight, getting on a plane, um, sitting in the airport and potentially getting layovers and delays from the weather, or even being on a bus next to the big stinky person who takes up all the seat and like leans back into my face. Like, I, luckily, I'm sorry for those of you who have to deal with that, but I don't. And so when, when it was my first year in seminary, um, I met a bunch of new friends, obviously. And the thing is that all of them, none of them were from this area. So all of them had to go through that process of flying or busing far away. And I just want to share a story about uh, a couple friends of mine in their first Thanksgiving in seminary and their little depressing story. So these are two guys um, who are from far away uh, from Boston, at least, in uh, places where you'd have to fly, uh, one Buffalo and the other Dallas. And so they decided, you know what, for Thanksgiving, we're going to stay. Two major reasons. Firstly, Thanksgiving really isn't that long of a break, right? So we'll we'll have classes up until Wednesday. So the Thursday and Friday is off, and then the rest is, you know, it's normal weekend. And so they figured all that money that's going to go into the flight and all that time and all that energy and potentially all that headache is, isn't really worth just a couple days. And secondly, they kind of put on like their, like puffed up their chest and their manly mess. Yeah, we don't care about the holidays. It's just another day. Well, deep inside, I'm pretty sure they were weeping because they missed their moms. And these are older, more mus- muscular, like manly guys. But I mean, you know that they're really missing mom and mom's food. But so they decide to stay. However, being... Um, middle-aged or, or mid-20s, one was actually in his 30s, um, young men, they don't plan in advance, right? So they have Thanksgiving, they wake up in the morning, and then they're, okay, we'll have a good Thanksgiving dinner together. But what's the problem? Nothing's open on Thanksgiving, right? Except Chinese food. Chinese food. You see, we, we have to thank that our Chinese friends in the restaurant industry for being so resilient and always having that kind of outlet for us to, 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 to get some food, right? And so they figured, well, we got to do our best to at least have a Thanksgiving meal. We're away from our families. Secretly, we're lonely, but we're together and let's have a meal. And so they got a pseudo Thanksgiving turkey in the form of General Gao's chicken. And they did their stuffing with pork fried rice and mashed potatoes made out of low main, right? And so they had their table and they ate and, um, and they said that it wasn't hard, but you could see it in their eyes that it was actually depressing for them. The reason why I share this and the thing about holidays and even um, like, let's take Thanksgiving, for example, since it's coming up soon. As much as being with family and loved ones and friends is a critical part that we uh, like long for and that's important to us, the practice and even the image of being around the table and sharing a meal with guests and with loved ones is actually very critical to our culture. And the thing is that this dates back even to ancient Israel. 
Today, we're going to be reading a passage from the Gospel of Luke. And most of us know that, um, and we've heard it before here at Cornerstone, maybe you've heard it in a Bible study or in another church sermon that you've heard before. But Luke is all about his perspective, just continuously is focusing on uh, the lowly people of society, the outcasts. And also connected with that, he's always teach, or showing and writing and recording Jesus speaking about money, what to do with your finances. He'll have parables about so-and-so, that, about money, and continuously uh, having that image cycling. But one thing about Luke that's connected to that imagery that we often miss is that a lot of that is centered around the table, meals, and specifically the custom, the ancient Near East tradition of banqueting. And banqueting was something clear in which built this distinction, this divide between the poor and the rich, between the wealthy and those who are in deep need. So that's the context. Jesus is invited by Pharisees to a banquet, and that's where we start our passage today. Luke 14, verse 12 says, He said also to the man who had invited him, When you give a dinner or a banquet, do not invite your friends or your brothers or your relatives or rich neighbors, lest they also invite you in return and you be repaid. But when you give a feast, invite the poor, the crippled, the lame, the blind, and you will be blessed because they cannot repay you, for you will be repaid at the resurrection of the just. So Luke is, this, is, this context is in the banquet, which Jesus is invited for. And, and like I just said, Luke is, has this imagery, this, uh, this focus on the table. And so a few examples that we find is the story of Zacchaeus, right? The tax collector. Some of us may have known from Sunday school the little drawings of the short guy who had to climb up the tree in order to see Jesus. And what does Jesus say to him? He says, Zacchaeus, come down. I'm going to eat with you dinner at your place tonight. Then we have Martha and Mary, which are two of the closest uh, relationships that Jesus had while he was here on earth. And we have that image of Martha always kind of uh, uh, busying herself over in the kitchen and, and preparing a meal for Jesus, and they're constantly sharing a meal together. We have this one where Jesus is invited to banquets, and we have uh, the first miracle that Jesus performed by turning water into wine at a wedding feast. And this all kind of builds up and climaxes in the final supper, the last supper that he shares with his disciples, which we practice in remembrance today called communion. And Luke is also the only gospel writer who records the Pharisees criticizing Jesus for eating with the lowly people, the outcasts of society. So that verse or that phrase that we might have heard often of, oh, look at him, he's dining with sinners. That's from Luke. Now, the reason why these banquets were important, and they're actually not merely important, but actually necessary for the culture, was because banquets were a time for... um, where the host would be able to connect with, uh, build relationships, and strengthen relationships with the people, with their guests. So whether it be getting action, they would always get something in return. So whether it actually be finances, money in return, a lot of it was uh, you'd get a bump up the social ladder, up the social hierarchy, or maybe you would have more status and worth in your community because you invited people of worth, people of status, people of importance. And so this was a critical part of their culture that was absolutely necessary. And as as much as it was extremely expensive, it was worth every penny to them because they saw it like it as an investment, because it was. Let's see what Jesus says about these these cultures. Oops, wrong way. He says in verse 12, 
He said also to the man who had invited him, when you give a dinner or a banquet, do not invite your friends or your brothers or your relatives or rich neighbors, lest they also invite you in return and be repaid. So right off the bat, we, in our passage, boom, we have Jesus making conflict with critical and important and even necessary culture, cultural customs of the time. He's saying it completely backwards, right? So for him to say, uh, don't invite these people, it, it, it makes no sense to them as they hear him, his teaching, because these people are actually what the purpose of holding the banquet was for. So it's like if I were to um, host a fundraiser and walk around to you guys and be like, yeah, I'm doing this fundraiser, uh, but I don't want, I'm, I'm not collecting any of your money. Or if uh, maybe one of your coworkers is really into a certain cause and wants to start a petition, but then they don't collect any signatures. Or that's like you and your friends, your guy friends gathering around saying, hey, we're going to watch a really good sports game today, and I'm turning on the Yankees, right? It makes no sense. (laughs) I'm just kidding. It's a bad example, bad example. Nobody watches the Yankees anyway. No, but uh, (laughs) I know Red Sox didn't make the playoffs. We can hate it too. But uh, let's see what he does. Who does he say to invite? He says, when you give a feast, invite the poor, the crippled, the lame, and the blind. So we have this, first of all, before he even gets to this part, they're already like, you make no sense. The perp- There's no point in having a banquet if we're not inviting our friends, our relatives, our rich neighbors, people of status and worth. And he's going to the extreme, polar opposite, and saying, invite the lowliest, the outcast, the people who are in deepest need, who can do absolutely nothing for you. Scholar, historical scholars say that in banquets of this time, these folks right here, they weren't merely um, uninvited or left off the guest list. They weren't even allowed on, on the premises. They weren't allowed nearby. Furthermore, because they were considered uh, morally um, inferior and culturally excluded, the needy folks, the needy people, the poor, the crippled, the lame, the blind, they weren't even allowed to practice religious ceremonies. Doesn't, like, doesn't that upset you? Like to think like if we were to go back in time and kind of watch this happen and to see a guy who's in deep need and for the religious people to say, we're not going to invite you to our things, we're not going to help you, and you're not allowed to do religious things either. That's as if a homeless person were to walk into Cornerstone this morning at this time, at this moment, and if we were halfway, we would say, okay, you can come here. However, when we take communion and we pray, you're not allowed to do that. And when we stand up and sing songs, make sure you stay seated and don't sing along with us. But if we went all the way like this, we wouldn't have even let them through the door. We'd say, no, this isn't for you. We'd lock the doors and have people standing there waiting for people of significance to come through our doors and then welcome them in with open arms. But completely shut up those who are in need. How like appalling is that image? And the thing is, as much as we wouldn't lock the doors on a homeless person, maybe our, we do it in a different way in which this teaching is extremely valuable for us today. Now, the application that we get from this passage isn't that, you know, Jesus said in verse 12, like, 
don't invite your friends and your family and rich neighbors and people of importance, basically. So the application that we get home and we take home today isn't, okay, when my sibling's birthday comes around, uh, I'm not allowed to buy them a birthday gift or I can't take my friend out for a nice dinner and treat them for their birthday. Or when Mother's Day comes around, no, like, mom, I'm not going to get you a gift because the Bible says not to do stuff for our family. That's not the case. What is going on is that Jesus is saying, you need to radically shift your focus your hearts, your attention, your priority on people who are in need, people who are desperately needy, the outcasts of society, the ones who are lowly. Practically, what does that look like? That means our energy, our time, and especially our money, if we were to listen to this, needs to be uh, heavier and more attention to these people and not you know, our vacationing, our entertainment, our shopping, our feeding ourselves and buying new gadgets for ourselves. Let's, let's take one minute, right, and think about just our money usage in one week. Doing a whole year would be a little too hard for us to think of, but let's just say a nice, a good movie comes out. And so without question, we'll just go and, um, you know, it's a blockbuster. It's like everybody's watching. It's a new superhero or whatever, like, the, for the 20th time, and let's go watch that. Or, you know, it's your friend's birthday comes up, so you do a really big deal to plan their party and to, to shower them with gifts. Or um, maybe you see a deal online, and it's just like, oh my God, it's 40% off. Like, if it's that, you can't pass that up. Or many of us are already actually planning on what to buy for Black Friday, right? Like, you plan in advance almost. And so if we were to combine that sum and multiply it by 52, and think of that number, and how much we give to people who are desperately needy in one year. It's, it's merely a fraction, if anything. Christ is teaching our focus in your attention. Your priority has to be to people who are in need. But ours is like, boom. I know mine is. The thing is, where we put our money, it really shows where, what we value, right? If we had a professional musician in the room and he had $500 headphones on, none of us would question him why he did that. We'd say, oh, it's because he's a musician. He loves music. It's what he cares most deeply about. It's what he's most passionate about. He wants to hear his music at the best possible quality. So if that, if we really, it's true, we put our money what we care about. So then if we look at the church, if we look at ourselves and self-examine, self-audit, or maybe if someone outside the church looks in on us, what do we care about? What are we most passionate about? Who do, or who, rather, do we love the most? It seems like the answer would be me. I love myself the most, not the people that Jesus calls me to love. The thing is, we use a lot of language, right? Ever since we were a baby or a kid, and if we, I know not everyone here did, but many of us may have grown up in Sunday school, and right off the bat, they teach you to, to pray and to sing about being more like Jesus, right? For good reason. We'll sing little by little every day. I'm changing, I'm changing, I'm growing. Then we'll grow up and get a little bit older, and then it's songs about like, you know, mold me, make me more and more like you. You know, we'll sing songs like that. And we'll pray that for each other as well. I pray that all the time. Jesus, won't you make us more like you? Won't you form and shape Cornerstone to be God, to be more like your son? The thing is, we pray and we sing and we want and we talk and we share in our small groups about being more Christ-like. 
and yet our financial usage is, remains untouched. So our Christ-likeness is like, okay, I'm going to make sure I pray more and love and not argue with my roommate as much, and I'm going to attend Fridays instead of just Sundays because being a Christian is about uh, being corporate and not being individualistic. All that is true. However, if this is separated from the way that we worship with our money, then we're not being more Christ-like at all, right? Because Luke, he's a gospel writer. He has credibility more than me. All he talks about is money, 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 money. Flip through it. Look at the editors, the little highlight, uh, the, the headings on your passages. You don't even have to read Luke. Just flip through. It'll take you five minutes. And how, count how many times Jesus preaches and teaches about money. And Luke records that. So Luke, under my impression, seems to really, really think that Jesus is telling us that money and our money usage is extremely important. And so if we're constantly praying and singing, I want to be more like Jesus, there's a huge disconnect there. Because the gospel tells us over and over that Jesus was concerned about the poor and sacrificing for people. And the people of God, we largely remain complacent and unmoved. This, as I was um, preparing for this message, uh, you know, I was reading over this passage and then I was reading something that a scholar wrote about it, and I was just like, whoa, like, whoa. So I had to like pick up a bunch of other books and I'm in the library with 10 books and it's like boom, 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 and I just can't get off of it because at first, it was so difficult for me to swallow that. I really have to give more of my energy, my heart, and my money to poor people than my friends and family? Is that true? So I'm wrestling with that and it's like, Every direction kept pointing to it. Jesus is saying, you, you stop focusing on yourself so much. The scary part and the hardest part is I think it's not just about like, oh, I wasn't thinking and I just spent money. No, it's become a part of who we are. It's ingrained into our fiber, into our being, right? We're just born and we grow up and we say, oh, of course I'm going to get a job. Of course I'm going to buy myself stuff. Of course I'm going to treat myself. It's just, it's so deeply ingrained in our being to the point that we don't even question it. How many of us question significant or even insignificant, insignificant purchases? If we do, I'll bet on it's, oh, I probably can't afford that. I probably shouldn't. Not, where does the Lord want me to give this to? In what ways can I honor and bless those who are in need with my finances? Who is my neighbor that is in need right now that I should love? Where are those concerns? Jesus does not stop talking about that. I cannot emphasize that anymore. The thing is, when Jesus heard, or when the, the original listeners heard Jesus say this, verse 13, but when you give a feast, invite the poor, the crippled, the lame, and the blind, instantly, instantly they knew. Like I said before, that's a little bit nonsense and crazy. But secondly, that means if, that's, if I'm going to listen to you, that means I'm going to take a huge hit. That means I'm going to feel it and it's going to hurt because I'm going to spend all this money inviting this, hosting this banquet and it's all going to be gone. Nothing's going to get in return. I just lose. I sacrifice. And the point is, it's exactly that. And that's exactly what we can take from this passage is that we are supposed, it's, it is going to hurt. But it's to the point in which Christ leads us to sacrifice in that way in the way that he does, in the way that he teaches, that when we hear, oh man, like priority to the to needy people, not myself, not even my family, that, 
that's going to make me uncomfortable. Yeah, it is going to make you uncomfortable. Jesus never says, give what you have and what you can afford while feeding yourself. He says, give to these people so you'll get nothing in return. And instantly they hear, ouch, and we do too. In his book, Generous Justice, uh, Pastor Tim Keller, some of you may have read the book. If you haven't, you should go out and get it. It's real cheap. It's real good. You could read it in like a couple hours. He says that if we're, as a church, if we're not giving our money away, that we're not just being selfish and stingy, we're being unjust. This too was something I was like, oh my goodness. Like I stopped and I'm just like, double take. You know, I have to read it a million times over. Is, is that true, right? Like, so he's saying that if the church isn't, if we're not giving generously, that the church, the people of God, the body, the one who stands for justice, right? We're actually not doing that at all. We're being unjust. We're standing for injustice. Those are serious, like heavy, heavy words. To say that, if that's possible, to, 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 to say that that's true, that the church is actually the ones who are unjust. Many of us do have a concern for social justice. We do. When the holidays come around, we'll care and, you know, we'll want to donate and, you know, we have these different opportunities and we'll want to contribute. But my thing is, firstly, does the calendar dictate that? I hope not. But secondly, does your concern start as a concern, live as a concern, and then just die as a concern? Does it transform who you are, the way that, not like you have to consciously think, but just, it just is natural in me to be a generous giver. And the thing is, I think that yes, it does stay like that and it dies like that. Unless, unless the gospel takes root deeply inside of our hearts and grows. The gospel is the only thing, really the only, only thing that has the transformative power to make us extravagant, sacrificial, Christ-like, generous givers. God, in his great mercy, sent his son from the throne in heaven. If you want to know what that throne looks like and how amazing it is, just go to Revelation 4 later when you get home today. The throne of heaven to be born in a manger. I have a lot of love and gratitude and respect for the different publishers and companies and organizations that have made a lot of the children's ministry materials. But I, I'm afraid that sometimes or a lot of times, instead of just bringing it down to children's level so that they can understand, it's kind of like shifted to children's level so that they can understand. What I mean by that is a lot of us have skewed understandings of the nativity scene of Noah's Ark, of so many of the stories of Jonah because it got a little too kiddy. For example, we think of Jesus coming, uh, the nativity scene, right? And there you have the cute lambs that are like nice and clean and white with big eyes and baby Jesus with long eyelashes and smiling up at Mary and Joseph, covered in this clean white cloth. And he still had that blue thing even right when he was born. And then you got hay kind of sticking out nicely around him. It's a manger, a feeding trough. If we were to really think about what the nativity scene was like, there's no glamour and, and, and big smiles. There was reverence and worship for sure. But in terms of its pristine cleanliness, it's probably a dirty cloth wrapped around the king of, of the universe, which is on top of 
years worth of animal saliva and dirt and who knows what comes out of their mouths, their leftover food. It's not, oh, you know, away in a manger. It's no. The throne of heaven in reigning glory to a feeding trough. That's sacrifice. That's what our God embodied. He lived a life where he was not only reaching out to these people, the outcasts, but he was one of them the whole time. That's another image that we have kind of skewed, right? Jesus the carpenter, oh yeah, he was, you know, because he was a carpenter, he's all manly and burly. He probably had really like nice hands and chiseled triceps from all the hammering. No. When people say he's a carpenter, he was poor. Not, where do we get this? I'm sure he, maybe he was more muscular, but that's not the point. He was poor. He was a victim of injustice his entire life. And at the very beginning, from the very beginning to the very end, because what does he do? He's poor and traveling and preaching throughout as his, in his adulthood, and then he gets crucified. And at the very last moment of his life, this life of poverty, the life of being the recipient of injustice, it ends with him being stripped of his robe and staff, the, what, the two to like nothing things that he had, and to being crucified, to bearing uh, shame, disgrace, bearing wrath of God. This is the God that we're talking about. This is the person that we're saying, can I be more like Jesus? He sacrificed everything. God, in, in his great love, he reaches out his hand in invitation, and he invites us to his banquet. But the thing is, it's not merely just an inv- invitation on the guest list. It's not just saying, oh, you can come. It's not, he doesn't ask for anything in return but our faith, our loyalty. And he seats us at the best seat at the table. We are lavished in riches and lavished in love. We are the recipients of that. And it's that gospel power, which if not, if that doesn't take root and transform, and that, that doesn't take that, or give you that transformative power, there's nothing else. That's exactly what's going to make us extravagant. Our understanding and our receiving of that word, of that truth, of that conviction, of that power, that's it. The thing about Jesus is that constantly, and you'll hear, you know, the pastors preaching about it all the time, that Jesus confronts culture. And the thing is, he does. But he never confronts culture for the sake of culture battle. He, front, he confronts culture to get to the heart. Because our hearts are so deeply ingrained in this stuff that he needs to break through it and get to the other side. And the best part, I feel, is that the world, that, that distinguishes our following Christ, being a Christian from the world, is that the world here is sacrificed and it's just burden. It's heavy. It's on our backs. It's thinking like, whoa. Sacrifice to the world is nonsense, to be, just to be blunt. But to us, once we realize that God's uh, lavishing of riches on us and saving us, it frees us from that. It frees us from, from, from feeling like we find our security and money, that we need to hold so tightly to it and we can't let go. It frees us. It enables us to give joyfully. There's no guilt-driven guilt or burden. It's freedom to say, no, that's right. I do want to be like Jesus. It's not like, okay, fine. Like, here's, you know, here, take this money or take my time. No, it's, God, what more can I give you? That's the best part. And this whole series revolved around generosity. The church, we joyfully give. 
because of what we have received. It's not burdensome anymore. It's not something that we care. Like, okay, fine, I'll have to be a little bit poor because that guy needs my money more. No, it's God, how much more can I give you? At the end of this passage in verse 14, Luke writes, and you will be blessed because they cannot repay you for you will be repaid at the resurrection of the just. So Jesus here is teaching that when you care and you give and you sacrifice for those in need, you'll be blessed. And further, you'll be repaid at the end. This is the foundation and the hope that we can stand on. That as much as if we do end up giving stuff away and we're like, whoa, where's my blessing? No, we have hope that there is repayment. There is blessing. Maybe in life, maybe not. But at the end of days, that is a promise that we hope for and that we know to be sure, absolutely sure. And so what else moves us? What else keeps us back and holds us and chains us? The gospel frees us from that and also acts as a foundation to stand upon that rough time when we feel like we've become the lowly ones. My prayer for this church, for myself, I need it so much, and for you guys, and for all of the church of Christ, is that we would be more Christ-like, that our prayers would be real, they would never cease, continue, and Jesus, make me more like you, but that we would understand how so much of that being Christ-like has to do with sacrificially, lovingly giving to people who are in need. The clear gospel transformation in the body of the church is seen in lives extravagantly giving and doing justice for those who are in need. Let's pray that the Lord would do that gospel transformation work in us today. Let's pray together. I just want to give you guys uh, 30 seconds to... Um, let's pray that prayer again. I, that, the prayer to... You know, I pray that all the time. Jesus, would you make me more like you? Would you make... You know, my family, my friends more like you. Would you make our church more like you? Let's pray that personal prayer. It's such an important and powerful prayer. And let's really hope and trust in that. Saying, Jesus, make us more like you. And then just in a few seconds, I'll close us. Gracious God, we... We call you gracious because we know that to be true. And we know that you, even to sinners and to people who deserved wrath and punishment, you didn't just merely forgive us and stop there, Lord. You lavished us with your love, which we are so, ever so grateful for. And Lord, I do pray that special prayer. Jesus, make Cornerstone Church more like you. Heavenly Father, shape and form and mold us more into the likeness, into the image of your son. We need your spirit to work in us. So Father, I pray that as we hear this word that we would be convicted not to the point of just having emotional movement, but Lord, that we would have that desire and that passion to be more like you and to give and to serve and to love abundantly, even sacrificially to the point that it hurts and makes, might make us uncomfortable. Lord, help our church to be known, to be marked by one that just loves people, loves our neighbors, gives extravagantly, supports people who are in need, lifts other people up who are in pits, puts an extension of invitation into their homes and hospitality, who loves 
God, you command us to love you and to love our neighbors. We pray that you would help us to do that. So Lord, we commit this time to you. We commit our lives to you. We commit our finances to you, our energy, our time. And Holy Spirit, we ask that you would really be working in our hearts and our minds. That we would be faithful. Faithful to you and faithful witnesses to this world. Thank you for giving us so much and for sacrificing your heavenly throne and your seat there to a manger and to a life of poverty. We pray that we would look upon your life and want to do the same. We pray all these things in Jesus' name. Amen.